Turn with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. Hear again the word of God. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we beg your help as we study your word. We ask, O Father, you would bless it, that you would send God the Holy Spirit to make us alive to hear that you would bless your word, that you would give us hearts to receive it and obey it. We ask, Lord, that you would purify the mouth of your servant and that you would open the ears of our hearers. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When we last left off in Romans chapter 6, we read in verse 14, That sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, we understand this to mean that we are not under the law as a covenant of works. We are under the covenant of grace. And while we, in Adam's fall, sinned all, Christ has taken away the curse of the law from us. Since we are not under the law as a covenant of works, and remember as in the covenant of works, Adam was promised life on the condition of personal and perfect obedience. But we are not under that covenant. We are under the covenant of grace in which God promises forgiveness and life on the condition of faith in Jesus Christ. That being the case, someone might conclude that we could sin without consequence. After all, we are promised life and forgiveness of sins if we believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus and God will forgive my sins. Perhaps sin will not have consequences after all. Indeed, some might say that because we are not under law, and sin is the transgression of the law, perhaps it follows that sin doesn't even matter. Maybe someone would say that since we are under grace and God promises to forgive our sins, maybe it doesn't even matter. And so Paul asks and answers this question in verse 15. He says, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? His answer, certainly not. Or as other translations put it, by no means, God forbid, Obviously, such a conclusion does not follow. As John Calvin explained, we are freed from the curse of the law and the severity of the covenant of works 
but we are by no means freed from the law as a rule of direction and discipline, even in the covenant of grace. Moreover, as the apostle will go on to explain here in verses 16 through 19, while you are under grace, you must not serve sin. Because serving sin makes you a slave to sin. But God has made you a slave to righteousness. Therefore, you must serve righteousness. As we consider these verses, what will become clear to us is that one way or another, you are a slave. You are either a slave to sin or to righteousness. And we will consider this proposition under three points. Number one, the evidence of slavery. Number two, the options of slavery. And number three, the obligations of slavery. We look first at the evidence of slavery, and this is taken from the first half of verse 16. The evidence of slavery. Now, in John chapter 8, which we read, Jesus told the Jews that the truth would make them free. And they did not understand him. And they responded by saying, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Not only did they misunderstand what Jesus was telling them, they also seemed to have missed Jewish history 101. The Jews had been enslaved to Egypt. They had been enslaved to the Babylonians. They had been enslaved to the Persians. They had been enslaved to the Greeks. And in Jesus' day, they were in bondage to the Romans. They were one of the most enslaved peoples in history. Nevertheless, Jesus skips past that and explains his point. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Jesus is not talking about earthly slavery. He's talking about a spiritual bondage. And that's Paul's point here in verse 16. Serving sin makes you a slave to sin. As he says, do you not know? That's rhetorical, right? He wants them to... In other words, you ought to know, you should know this, that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. The answer to his question there is self-evident. When you present yourself as a slave to someone, you are that one's slave. This is axiomatic. Uh, If you enslave yourself to someone, you're a slave. If someone enslaves you, they are your master. If you have a master, you are a slave. So that is the evidence of slavery. To present yourself to someone as a slave, to sell yourself into slavery, as it were, or to obey someone who claims to be a master over you is indicative of a slave-master relationship. If sin has the power to command you, sin is your master. If you obey sin, you are sin's slave. That is undeniable. That is self-evident, axiomatic. Now, there is a common trope in uh, books and movies and in television in which the rightful owner of a dog or sometimes a cat or some other animal is ascertained by seeing to whom will the dog obey or to whom will the dog go if he is called, right? I even saw this on Judge Judy once. 
You guys know about Judge Judy. In this episode of Judge Judy, a man sued a woman claiming that she had stolen his dog. And there is a dispute then whether this man or this woman is the rightful owner of the dog. Now the woman, in her defense, and disputing the claim, she presented as evidence paperwork showing her purchase of the dog. She had testimony from another person saying it was her dog. And she even had photographs of her and the dog together. But Judge Judy, in a a Solomon-like moment, said, bring the dog in here. The dog. Bring the dog, she says. Bring the dog in here. And she ordered that the dog be placed on the floor. And almost immediately, the dog left the side of the woman and ran to the man and jumped up on him. And Judge Judy said, that is the rightful owner of the dog. I award it to the plaintiff, case dismissed. It was clear that that man, whatever the paperwork and the photographs and the testimony said, it was clear that in that dog's mind, he belonged to that man. And that was enough for Judge Judy. Here's my question for you all this evening. Who is your master? To find the answer to this question, you only need to ask yourself these questions. Whom do I obey? Whom am I serving? What does the evidence reveal? Who commands you? Whom do you obey? And you will find your master. This brings us to our second point. The options of slavery. Bob Dylan, one of the world's prophets, he wrote a song. You may know it, some of you. Gotta serve somebody. In this song, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Although this might be an occasion in which I actually have a better voice than the artist. (laughs) Nevertheless, Bob Dylan and Gotta Serve Somebody said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And if you know the song or if you've ever heard it, he gives a, a, a litany, a list of many things in which people could submit themselves to service. And his point, of course, is that everyone serves someone or something. Bob Dylan is wrong about a lot of things. But on this point, this poet was exactly correct. Everybody serves somebody. It's never a question of if. Really, it's a question of who. Now, here from the end of verse 16 through verse 18, under the options of slavery, we see that everyone is a slave. You, as you sit here right now tonight, my friends, you are a slave to someone. There are only two options at the end of the day. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to God. There is no third alternative. Those that think that they have found a third alternative are actually laboring under the illusion of the devil. They are not only enslaved to sin, but they're actually enslaved to a lie. They think that they are free, but really they are serving sin. The apostle makes this clear. You are a slave, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Those are the two options. 
for every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth that has been born or will be born or is alive right now. Those are the options. Now, the two different options, you'll notice, come with different outcomes. Serving sin, we read, leads to death. Death here, as we've discovered before in Romans, refers to physical death, spiritual death, and even eternal death, along with all the miseries that accompany it. You see, whatever sin promises you, the only thing it can actually provide you is death. Serving obedience, on the other hand, which, by the way, the word obedience here is probably an abbreviation for saying obedience to God. Serving obedience leads to righteousness. Now here, if you look closely at the verse, we might have expected Paul to say life, right? Because he's making a contrast. Sin leads to death. Obedience, which is the opposite of sin, leads to, we would have expected life, which is the opposite of death. But he doesn't keep the contrast exact, does he? Instead, he says righteousness. But he says it the way that he says it for very good reason. You see, sin is, properly speaking, the cause of death. Obedience, however, is not strictly speaking or properly speaking the cause of eternal life. Now, the causes of eternal life that we've seen in Romans are, of course, the grace of God, the merits of Jesus Christ who died in your place, And finally, your empty hands of faith by which you receive Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel. So obedience, which Paul is speaking of here, is not the cause of eternal life. But obedience is the way of eternal life. You do not earn yourself a place in heaven. But the path which you walk on your way to heaven is a path that is named obedience. Do you understand? Remember Pilgrim's progress and Christian as he traveled from destruction to the celestial city. And he walked along the path and at points he had to obey. So too it is for everyone. Obedience is not the cause of your salvation. But obedience is a means and way which leads to your final reward. The righteousness that is being spoken of here then refers not to forensic or merely forensic or imputed righteousness, right? Because that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is perfect. And and that comes to us not by means of our obedience, does it? That comes to us as a gift from God reckoned to us. When we believe in Jesus Christ. So it has more than imputed righteousness intended here. This refers to what we'll call inherent or personal righteousness. This is the righteousness that God produces in his saints as he sanctifies them. You may remember last time we talked about sanctification is the work of God. Right? And the fruits of it are actually the effects of God's work. So the good works that we do are not the cause, but rather the results. God himself works in his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying to them the benefits of Jesus Christ and producing in them 
righteousness. That righteousness is the fruit of God's work. This is the process we call sanctification, growing in the image of Jesus Christ. At this point, it's perhaps helpful to set forth some distinctions between justification and sanctification. These are easily and often confused. Two especially helpful places for this are our larger catechism, questions 75 and 77, all right? Questions 75 and 77. But now, briefly, I'm going to give you six differences between justification and sanctification. Let me begin by saying this. Justification and sanctification always and ever accompany one another. They are inseparable. God gives both of them to his people. But justification is in the first place a declaration of God. God declares you righteous. Sanctification is described as a work of God. God works righteousness in you. Do you see the difference? Justification itself does not actually change your character one whit. Sanctification, however, is God working in you, producing that righteousness which he commands. Here's a second difference. In justification, God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is to say, he reckons it, counts it, credits it to your account. In sanctification, God infuses grace. Infuses grace. And enables you to exercise that grace. Here's the third difference. In justification, sin is pardoned, forgiven, taken away. In sanctification, sin is subdued. Sin is conquered and put away. Now, in justification, here's a fourth difference. In justification, every saint is equally justified. You are either justified or not justified. It's kind of like being pregnant, right? No one is partially justified. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ receives pardon and life. They are fully justified and free from the wrath of God. Sanctification differs in this way. It is unequal in this life. Some people are at different places in their sanctification. And this is according to the work of God who sovereignly declares and performs this work in his people. Some people due to various circumstances are at one place and some people due to various circumstances are at another place. Here is a fifth difference. Justification is perfect in this life, right now. The righteousness which you receive from God that's credited to your account when God declares you righteous, it's perfect. It will never be added to. You will not even be more righteous 100 years from now as it pertains to justification. In sanctification, the righteousness that God works in you is imperfect in this life. It is never completed yet in this life. 
It has fits and starts and is subject to the remaining corruption of sin. And here's a final difference. Justification is irreversible. It's immutable, unchangeable. It's not taken back. It it doesn't need to be added to. It can't be taken from. Sanctification, on the other hand, grows and moves towards perfection. All right, so then these are important differences between them. Again, larger catechism, questions 75 and 77. We have seen then that sin leads to death here, but obedience leads to righteousness. We see sin promises freedom and joy, but it only produces death. Obedience to God, however, leads to righteousness. And righteousness, dear friends, is the greatest freedom humans can enjoy. That is the freedom which Adam had when he was created perfect. So as we said, you are either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. Obedience being a way of saying you're a slave to God. Not only must you serve one of these two masters. It's also the case that you can only serve one of these masters. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. This is what Paul says in verses 17 through 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God has set you free from sin. And, what he, and when he freed you from sin, you became a slave of righteousness. Again, those are the only two alternatives. And so he took you from sin and brought you to righteousness. Therefore, you must learn to love righteousness and learn to hate sin. Do not try to serve two masters. This is what we call manumission, being set free from slavery. And Paul describes this manumission. He says, it occurred when you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see it there in verse 17. That form of doctrine, of course, refers to the gospel. The picture here is that of God pouring you into a form or a mold. The gospel, which is shaped like Jesus Christ, is a mold, a form. And it's like God pouring molten metal into this form. Why does he do that? So that you will be conformed to that form. That's the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now observe two things about your freedom from sin. Number one, it's obvious it's the work of God. Paul says, God be thanked. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Thank God you obeyed from the heart. Why? Because it was by the power of God that you did. He characterizes not as some daring escape from slavery according to your own power, but rather as a divine deliverance from the tyranny of sin. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Delivered. Notice you were passive. You were delivered. It was not your action, but rather God's. Your deliverance from slavery to sin constitutes your enslavement 
to righteousness. You see, we've already ascertained that you are and always will be a slave, either to sin or to righteousness. God did not free you from sin in order that you may serve sin. He freed you from sin in order that you may serve righteousness. This brings us to our third and final point. At the beginning of verse 19, Paul says, I speak to you in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. You know, God often communicates to us heavenly truths with earthly analogies. For example, Christ spoke of the Spirit's work of regeneration as being born again or being born from above. Uh, You can read about that in John chapter 3. The apostle here is acknowledging that he's using an earthly analogy to speak of a spiritual reality. And he acknowledges that sometimes earthly analogies can't entirely convey the whole of the spiritual truth. Put simply, human slavery falls short of communicating salvation. To begin with, human slavery is only temporary. When you die, you are freed from Slavery. And human slavery only pertains to the body. Even a master of a slave cannot command his soul. And he cannot own his soul. The slavery which Paul is discussing here, though, is both eternal and includes body and soul. Right? The consequences of slavery to sin are eternal. It doesn't stop. Because you see, to be enslaved to sin is really to be enslaved to who? To the devil, as the prophet Bob Dylan aptly noted. And so that will continue forever. Those in hell are still slaves, and they will be forever. And of course, in these kinds of slavery, it pertains to both body and soul. Sin not only commands the body, but also the soul. Likewise, righteousness pertains not only to our bodies, but to our souls. And slavery to righteousness results in what? Eternal life. So it is eternal. So Paul recognizes that the analogy is imperfect. Nevertheless, the basic principle is clear. A slave serves the will of his master. That is the definition of a slave. And he says, when you were a slave of sin... You serve sin as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Notice that lawlessness always leads to more lawlessness. Sin takes you farther away than you wanted to go. It takes you there faster than you thought you would go. You know, when I was a kid, in one of the towns that I grew up in, there was a train And the train would come through, and there was a place where there was a hill and a curve. And as the train climbed this hill and got around this curve, it slowed down sufficiently that we could jump onto it. And if we wrote, we could ride the train until it got past the the hill and the curve, and we could jump back off. And after that, it hit us straight away on level ground, and it sped up again. Well, one time, I wasn't content with hopping off at the usual place. I thought I would stay on a little bit longer. And I reasoned that I would just wait until the next slowdown and hop off at that point. How far would it go? Dear friends, I was near halfway across the state, 
Not only did this train not slow down again and give me a chance to hop off, I am sure that it sped up. You see, it took me farther and faster than I wanted to go. And that's what sin is. You see, sin leads to lawlessness and more lawlessness, and it will always take you farther away more quickly than you thought it was going to go. David did not start out a murderer. He started out with a wandering eye, and then he lusted, and then he committed adultery, and then he lied, and then he murdered. Right? That sin took him farther than he thought. But that is what sin always does. But Paul says, when you were a slave to sin, you were obliged to sin. Now, however, you are a slave to righteousness. And this is in our third point, the obligation of slavery. This means being a slave no longer to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You are actually free to say no to sin. Sin does not have the power to command you. On the other hand, it also means that you must say yes to righteousness. And so Paul says, So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. The slave belongs to his master. His body, his labors, everything that he has belongs to his master. You, having been freed from sin, are now slaves of righteousness. Which is to say, you and everything that you have belong to God. Your life, your breath, your eyes, your hands, your heart, everything that you have belongs to God. And it's to be used to serve according to his will. You see, uh, the wicked use themselves to serve their master. And God is telling you here... I have freed you from that. You are now my slaves. Use yourself to serve me. Let me ask you, do you know in the Old Testament law, when a slave took a wife or had children, do you know to whom those belonged? Well, they belonged to the master. If a slave had a child, that child was born into slavery. He belonged to the master. Consider this, Christian parents. You, being slaves of God, your children, by virtue of your slavery, likewise slaves to God. God owns them. He claims ownership of them. Therefore, you must teach them to love righteousness. Now, when Paul says to present your members as slaves of righteousness to holiness, he simply means you must devote your energy, your, your faculties, your abilities to obeying God with all that you have. That's your, your eyes, your hands, your heart, your household, all that you have. Take a look at the world for a moment. Do you see how industrious the wicked are in their service to sin? Would that we would work half as hard to serve righteousness as the wicked do to serve sin. Could we work to be at least as devoted to righteousness as the world is to serving sin? 
This holiness in verse 19, which Paul speaks of, is the end or the goal of serving righteousness. You serve righteousness unto holiness. And this refers to your progress in sanctification. As you practice righteousness, as you serve righteousness, as you do righteousness, you grow in holiness. This is that holiness, by the way, spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, righteousness and holiness are not the cause of eternal life, but they are the way there. And if you're going to eternal life, you must walk that path. So you've seen the antithesis here between serving sin and serving righteousness. And a slave of sin, he serves sin. And a slave of righteousness serves righteousness. I want you to consider Rahab, Rahab the harlot. By her name, we know that at one time she served sin. But then she received the spies. God delivered her from that. God delivered her from the tyranny of sin. Took her literally out of Jericho and brought her to Israel. And then we see in Rahab that she set about serving righteousness. Her allegiances changed. She was freed from one master and given to another, a benevolent and good master. And she began serving with her members righteousness. And we see this first of all in her receiving the spies and hiding them and sending them out the other way. We see this in her putting away her harlotry becoming a wife and a mother. Do you know that Rahab was the mother of Boaz? And Boaz, of course, begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, and from David the king came the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you see how Rahab changed her allegiances? She was freed from sin and decided to devote herself to righteousness. And she is set down for us as an example An example of one who served righteousness unto holiness. Now we've looked at the evidence of slavery. If you want to know who is ruling over here, ask whom you are obeying. We've seen the options of slavery. We know that there are two and only two. You can either serve sin or righteousness, which is to say you can serve the devil or you can serve God. And then we see that there's an obligation that comes with slavery. The slave belongs to the master. He does his master's will. He uses his body, everything that he has, in service of the master. My challenge to you, beloved, tonight is choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Let us pray. Almighty God, that you would take us as your servants. Help us, O oh Father. Help us. Help us. <laughs> Give us the grace and the strength that we need that we would not want to serve sin, that having been freed from it, we would not want to return to it. But more and more, we would see the beauty of your righteousness and holiness and be drawn to that, and that we would walk the path that in the end brings us to eternal life. Help us, O God, for your name's sake. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.